Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. It's now, I think, quite clear that that dreaming actually serves a function. The brain is working all night long to process the information we took in during the day. For every two hours we spend awake, wandering through the the world, experiencing all the myriad things that we experience during the day, for every two hours of that, the brain simply has to shut itself off from that world for an hour to just stop and figure out what it means. That's Robert Stickgold, whose new book, When Brains Dream, pulls back the curtain on those tantalizing, frustrating, bizarre nighttime movies in our head, which seem to make little sense but which he argues are essential to our being able to make sense of our waking world. By exploring possibilities that our more sober daytime brains would never entertain, dreams are expanding our minds. I'm so happy to be talking with you today because dreams have always meant a lot to me, and you're the person to talk to about dreams. I I love your book. Well, thank you. One of the things I like about it so much is you go back to the very beginning. And a lot of us think that Freud was the beginning of analyzing dreams. But I saw in your in your early pages that there were people who were really at work on it before him in ways that he didn't acknowledge. That's absolutely true. He, he has a chapter in the interpretation of dreams where he sort of mentions all these prior researchers and, and basically says, eh, eh, you know, they, they didn't have much to say. They, they weren't that smart, you know, and, and just really sort of dismisses them. But they were actually scientists who were doing, in some cases, quite brilliant um, studies looking at dreaming by doing things like having a, a servant spray perfume on them while they were sleeping and then waking them up a couple of minutes later for a dream report, um, both to see if the uh, perfume got incorporated into the content of the dream, which it did. But with one of these guys, he would go traveling around the world. And when he was in some new city or a new country, he would take a new perfume and spray it on himself a lot. And then discover that when he came home and had his servants spray the perfume on him, he'd dream about being back in that city. Isn't that amazing? 
And they were doing these experiments in the 1850s. I mean, 50 years, really, before Freud got into it. But you have really explored dreams, I guess, as an outgrowth of your interest in sleep in general. It might have actually gone the other direction. Really? What got you into dreams? My dreams. I mean, the same as everyone else. Dreams are among the most amazing experiences we have in our life. And we get used to them. We get so used to them that we forget how amazing they are. But, you know, in the early chapters of the book, we talk about kids and how kids are just blown away by their dreams because they don't even know that they're dreams. So we understand that our dreams are dreams now, but the content is just amazing, right? What is that? What, what are dreams for? Why do we dream? It's, it's, it, it is universal, isn't it? Is there any evidence that people don't dream some? There are a couple of papers that suggest that if you bring into the laboratory people who tell you they never dream, 95% of them, you have them sleep in the lab, you monitor their sleep. When they're in REM sleep, you wake them up. And they say, wow, I was dreaming for the first time in my life. But it's really about just waking them up at the right time and having them pause a minute to, to pay attention to it. I, I would guess that except maybe for some people with very particular strokes and brain lesions that everybody in the world has always dreamt. For the one or two people who haven't heard what REM sleep is, it's the rapid movement of the eyes under your closed lids while you're dreaming. Is that right? Right. It, it turns out that we don't just have this amorphous state of being asleep. The brain actually goes through a very complex 90-minute cycle where it goes into very deep sleep and then comes up into much lighter sleep and then goes into this strange state that we call REM sleep. And during this period, your eyes are just jiggling back and forth as, as fast as can be. Your body is paralyzed during this state. And it's where you do your most intense dreaming. It turns out that we dream all night long. It might be that literally every minute of the night we're dreaming. What's interesting is that the dreams are more vivid, more emotional, more bizarre in REM sleep than in non-REM sleep. Before we get into that, which sounds really fascinating, what in general... Why do you suppose, or do you have any evidence to, to be pretty sure of why we dream at all? What's the purpose of it? I, I don't think nature would put us through that without some benefit. So it's now, I think, quite clear that, that dreaming actually serves a function. What we've learned over the last 20 years more generally is that sleep serves functions. It's very funny. If you go back to the 1990s and you asked, sleep researchers what the function of sleep was, well, Alan Hobson said its function is to cure sleepiness, which isn't very helpful. But literally in the year 2000, we didn't have functions for sleep. What's very, very clear now is that the brain is working all night long to process the information we took in during the day. For every two hours we spend awake, wandering through the the world, experiencing all the myriad things that we experience during the day, 
For every two hours of that, the brain simply has to shut itself off from that world for an hour to just stop and figure out what it means. It's very easy to see things and memorize things, and it's much harder to understand what they mean. And so it turns out that all of the memories that we're forming during the day are being brought back up during the night and being processed. We're extracting the meaning from them, if you will, while we sleep. And dreaming becomes a part of that. It turns out that there's certain cognitive functions, certain processes that the brain doesn't seem to be good at or maybe able to do it all when it's not conscious. Uh, and Antonio Damasio has written about this extensively in his books on consciousness. And he's argued that one of the functions of consciousness when we're awake is to allow the brain to construct and the person to construct narratives, to imagine things that might happen, to picture how something might turn out if you did this or if you did that or if someone else did this or if someone else did that, that we can sort of create a movie in our mind of, of what would happen. And, and Damasio argues that that has given humans and other, um, other mammals that might be conscious an incredible advantage over other organisms because we can plan things. We can plan what to do. We can do something as simple as go shopping and say, oh, let's see, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? Oh, I have to get this, I have to get that. I mean, all these simple things that we do without even thinking about it um, require the conscious mind to be conscious and aware to do that kind of processing. So it looks like we're using it the same way when we're asleep. A lot of the processing of memory, just the strengthening of a memory or maybe the extracting of a pattern within a memory, it looks like the brain can just do sort of offline like a computer would do it. But if the processing of the memory that the brain wants to do involves constructing a narrative, doing a what if, imagining how it might turn out if, if the individual did this or did that, the brain has to return to consciousness. That's the only state in which it can construct these narratives. And when we're conscious and we're asleep, that's called dreaming. And that's really what it's about. The, the bizarreness of dreams is so weird. Why are they so bizarre? Tony Zadra and I, who've written this book, When Brains Dream, we came up with this acronym, NEXT UP. And next up stands for Network Exploration to Understand Possibilities. And by that, we mean that when you dream, you're not trying to solve problems. You're really trying to explore possibilities because that's, that's what humans are fantastic at. They're fantastic at discovering possibilities that people say, how do you ever think of that? That's amazing. I, I would never have thought of that. And as often as not, those ideas come in dreams. What you're saying now leads me to think of the dream as having an audience, which is my conscious mind. But I get the impression 
from things you've written that the work of the dream is going on and something positive is occurring, whether or not I'm aware of the dream. If I don't remember the dream, has the work not yet, nevertheless been done? Is something yes. happening in the brain that's useful to me? Right. So to go into it just a little bit more deeply, what the brain is doing is it's searching all the time for connections. The, the, the brain is a meaning maker. That's what it is. It's a connection maker. It's a yenta. It's, it's finding this. You should really put this together with that. So when we dream, we take the events of our day and we say, what older memories do we have that are relevant to this? And so what we think is going on when you dream is the brain finds these associations. It constructs a little story that includes both the event from the day or aspects of that event and the memory or aspects of that memory. And it creates this little story and it looks at whether the audience applauds. It looks at whether it produces an emotional response. And if it does, positive, negative, a response of surprise or excitement, if there's any sort of emotional response, the brain says, okay, I'm going to take those two memories and I'm literally going to strengthen the neural connections between them. It's like setting it up there for you to use in the future. We all have these experiences where we're talking about something and then we say, you know, that reminds me. And you, you, you say something that it reminded you of and the other person says, what does that have to do with anything? And you say, I don't know, it just feels connected somehow. And those are probably connections that were made where you were, while you were dreaming. And you don't have to remember the dream when you wake up because those connections are already made. That associative nature of dreaming and of creativity itself, and that they, they seem very much allied. It's like that children's game of monkeys and one monkey's hand hooks onto another monkey's hand, and you can have a string of monkeys all holding hands. That's right. That's right. Dreams and creativity are all about association. When I teach students about these things, I say creativity is when you take two things you already know and see a new way to fit them together. It's not about bringing in new information from the outside. It's looking at information you already have and saying, oh, you know, if I turn that around and flip it over, it fits really nicely into this other thought. And that's what creativity is. And, and we have these moments when it just explodes in our minds, right? The function of dreams is to bias the brain to expect new associations to be valuable. If it was going to grade them the way it does when you're awake, it's going to say, nah, this is, this is too crazy to accept, and it's going to reject it. So we think that the brain is actually biochemically biased towards seeing the dreams as being really important. And that biochemical bias comes from the same place that it does when people used to take LSD. People who took LSD always had these acid insights. 
They would tell you after their acid trip that they had discovered the meaning of the universe and they just couldn't remember it. Except one friend of mine who wrote it down and he read it to me, he said, when you flush the toilet, everything, underline, 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 goes down. And he read this to me and he paused and he said, no, it, it meant a lot more than that. <laughs> At the time, you had to be there. At the time. Well, it turns out that LSD is a chemical that interacts with serotonin receptors in a way that can shut off the release of serotonin in the brain. One of the mysteries about REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, when we have these most intense and most bizarre dreams, is that the brain completely shuts off the release of serotonin, an event that we have had absolutely no explanation for, no rationale for. But I suspect that serotonin is involved in that judgment of what's important and what's not, and that at higher levels of serotonin, we're more critical in our judgment which in our everyday life might be very useful and very important. But when you're trying to blue sky, when you're trying to just imagine possibilities, you don't want that sort of self-censorship. And so it might be that the reason that the brain shuts off serotonin is to make us really believe that our dreams are important. And in the process of exploring possibilities, there seems to be a lot of attention paid to weak associations so as not to let them pass unnoticed. They seem weak, but they might turn out to be some kind of inspirational new, new direction to go in. Is that right? That's right. And interestingly, it looks like that's the specialty of REM sleep, that REM sleep um, is the state we actually did studies back in 2001 where we woke people up from REM sleep and then later in the night we woke them up from non-REM sleep and then again from REM and non-REM. And when we woke them up, we had them do these association tasks really quickly. They can do the whole task in two minutes while their, their brain is still sort of waking up and shifting back to the fully awake state. And what we found is that when we woke people up from REM sleep, the classically weak associations were much more easily activated than the strong associations. So people were faster to see the connection between wrong and thief than they were to find the association between right and wrong something that you would normally be right there. But when you wake them from REM sleep, it's the thief-wrong connection that functionally is stronger. So the brain is actually in REM sleep in a state where these weak associations are preferentially being activated. And so those are the places where the discoveries will be made. Like a brainstorming session where everybody's free to contribute something, even if it's left field. That's right. That's right. And where the judgment is, that's really exciting because the serotonin is turned off. Non-REM sleep seems to be better for strong associations. It's better for incorporating memories of actual events 
as opposed to um, activating memories of concepts or semantic ideas. And so non-REM sleep might be for more banal forms of association, helping you still to find important associations, but ones that don't seem so bizarre and far-fetched. After this pause in our conversation, I explore with Robert Stickgold the power of stories and how the brain's determination to construct stories to explain the inexplicable can lead us to believe the dreams are able to predict the future. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free, but you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Robert Stickgold and the power of stories, perhaps especially those we make up. I've become so aware as I've studied communication, how people relate to one another, that the power of story is enormous. Oh. And yet that's how our brains talk to us. It's maybe there's a, it's not just how we can best talk to other people. It's the natural form of communication between our brain and our conscious mind. That's right. It's how we it's how we come to understand. You know, the, the good and the bad always come mixed together. The, the the human brain, the human mind, these are meaning makers. They're they're they spend immense amounts of time and probably a third of our life when we're asleep, but also half the time that we're awake. It's trying to build stories to explain our experiences. And the good and the bad is that it will always succeed. It will always come up with a story. All you have to do is catch your child at age five with her hand in in the cookie jar and ask, what are you doing? And you see those gears start cranking. Oh, um, I, 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 my, my pencil. I, I'm looking for my pencil. I'm trying to do my homework, like I'm supposed to be doing my homework. And my pencil, um, the lead broke off and the lead fell into the, the cookie jar. It just happened to be here open. Um, yeah. <laughs> it just happened to be hovering over it. Yeah. I mean, but, but that's what the brain does. The brain explains things. And the problem is that if the correct explanation is not available, every human being will tend to find a different one. We have all these superstitions, right? Someone, you know, broke a mirror and something terrible happened. And they said, oh, it's bad luck to break a mirror. Um, all these superstitions and, and conspiracy theories are, are just that. I remember shortly after 9-11, someone said to me, you know, 9-11, that's 9 That's the number you call if there... And I said, oh my... No. No. It's, 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 it's just a coincidence. But your brain wants to go there and say... How could that be just a coincidence? Because your brain hates coincidences. Our brains have evolved to say that correlation means causation. As a dream researcher, one of the things I often experience is I'll give a talk and someone will come up to me afterwards and say, well, what about dreams predicting the future? And it's a question I sort of hate. Because these people always then tell me about a dream they had and some event that them then happened in their lives that they're convinced the dream was telling them about. They seem so related to each other. And I try to argue that most of those are probably just coincidences. Some of them actually are the brain while you're asleep and while you're dreaming putting together information that you have that actually suggests a possibility. I talk about um, a a young woman who said, I had a dream that my father 
had a heart attack and died. And the next morning, my mother called me and told me that that had happened. And she says, and he was so healthy. I mean, I had talked to him just the day before, and he told me about playing tennis. And he was, he said, it was one of the best games I ever played. I played so hard, my whole shoulder was aching. <laughs> Her unconscious picked up the symptom, and she hadn't. She hadn't. And so, so yes, the dream predicted the future, but it did it based on solid scientific evidence. So that's some of them. But they can be uncanny. They can be absolutely uncanny. We were writing this book, Tony Zadra and I, and I tell the story of this laboratory I used to teach in medical school called the Dog Lab, which they thankfully don't do anymore. But in it, first-year medical students studying physiology would actually get a living dog that had been anesthetized and would do all sorts of cardiovascular experiments on it, including cutting open the rib cage with a, a buzz saw and stopping the heart and applying drugs to the heart. And it, it, was, it, was, a, it was so gruesome that I couldn't bear to teach it. So when, when my group was at that point, I would also always grab a different faculty member and bring them over and say, you have to do this with them, I can't do it. So the first time I taught the dog lab, that night I have a dream. And in the dream, I'm back in the dog lab and we're about to cut open the, the chest. And this time I actually take the buzzsaw and I do it. And as I cut it open, I realize it's not a dog, it's my daughter, Jessie. Mm. And I remember in the dream, I say to myself, how could I have made this mistake and then as I watch, the, the incision seals up back together perfectly, and I notice there's not even a scar. So that's the dream. And I tell my wife about it when I woke up, and she says, well, that makes perfect sense because the dream was about your fear of death that it brought up. And where is your greatest fear of death? It's in your daughter, Jessie. And I said to her, well, that makes perfect sense, but that's not what it felt like to me. What it felt like to me is that the dream was saying, well, if it's okay to do this to a dog, why isn't it okay to do it to Jesse? And those are two possible, quote, meanings of the dream that you could come up with. And both of them could be possible. And we unfortunately will never know what actually caused my brain to construct that dream, what particular associations it was putting together. But 25 years later, I had a son, Adam, who had tetralogy of Felo. He, he was a blue baby. And at the age of four months, a surgeon took a buzz saw and cut open his rib cage and repaired his heart. And it wasn't until I was actually working on the book 10 years later that I said, oh my God, that dream predicted what happened to Adam. And then I said, no, no, just a coincidence. But, but that's what happens. Our brain finds these coincidences 
and can't let go of them. Um, you're of my generation, Alan. You remember how Paul was dead if you played one of the Beatles records backwards. Right. Paul is dead. But QAnon is the same thing. QAnon finds these words that Trump said in three different speeches that if you take those words and put them together, they tell you some message, some secret message. Um, it's, this, it's this drive to find meaning when there isn't any. When you said before, we may never stop dreaming when we're asleep. Is there something like that going on when we're awake and not aware of it? Oh, absolutely. There, there have been these wonderful studies done. If you, if you ping people on their phone at random times with the message, with a, sort of a little questionnaire that says, were you thinking now about what you were actually doing? The answer is when people are awake, about 60% of the time, the answer is no. So that's when they're in that state of... Of, of potential creativity, of, of hyper-association. They don't feel like they're doing anything, and yet something is going on. I'm sure you, like I and most people, have tried to empty your mind. Yeah. And the closest you ever get, or the closest I have ever gotten, was when I found myself saying, oh, God, I think it's empty now. Oh, shit. <laughs> Who's that talking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can't not think. We cannot be aware of it. But we're always thinking. I mean, as we talk to each other here, Alan, there'll be times when we're thinking, what did he mean by that? And sort of missing a bit of the conversation. Uh, it's, it's not that people are thinking about something totally unrelated, but they're parsing the last sentence some of the time. There's this default mode network in the brain that researchers have found is literally the circuit in your brain that's active when you're not doing anything. I had a friend who wrote best-selling novels, hundreds of thousands of copies, and the way he would write them was he'd take a yellow pad and a pencil and get in his car and drive. And while he was driving, the next chapter would come to him. I assumed he was in the default mode network when he was driving. He, his, he was driving, something in his brain was taking care of business driving. That's right. Something else was going on that was a creative process. And that network is also the network that creates narratives. So it's, it's all of a piece. Oh, oh, great. You brought me back to where we started. That's great. That's, that's so great. That is what creates narrative. That, this is wonderful. I wish we could talk forever, but I'm getting the signal that we have to come to oh. a close. But let me ask you, that: are you game for how we end our shows, which is with seven quick questions? Do I have to give seven quick answers? It would help. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's do it. They don't have to be super quick. <laughs> okay, first question. What do you wish you really understood? Consciousness. I'd like to understand what it actually is, how it's implemented in the brain, how inanimate matter can become conscious. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? 
I usually call them some really impolite thing. Um, I actually watched a podcast on this, I think just yesterday, in relationship to politics. And the, the solution appears to be to suggest other alternatives and to suggest ways in which their explanation is self-contradictory. At another time, I want to go into more detail with you about that. The third question is, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, dear. I have no idea. They ask me such strange questions. No, I don't think they do ask me strange questions. What's the strangest question? I'm drawing a complete blank. You sound like you have such an open mind that they don't, none of them sound strange to you. <laughs> or such a bad memory. <laughs> it sounds like you need to take a nap over that one. That's right. That's right. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? I start saying, but, 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 but. <laughs> but. You do an impersonation of a motorboat. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> or, or else, I'll actually, in extremis, I'll walk away. And they keep talking, I guess. They keep talking. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned as a dream researcher is that when I go to a party and they ask me, what do you do? I never say I study dreams. Because if I do, the next eight words out of that person's mouth are going to be, oh, I had the most amazing dream. <laughs> and they're going to proceed to tell me this incredibly boring and uninteresting story. And we all know this. We all have our friends who come and say, oh, I got to tell you my dream. And you say, no, that's okay. But it's really, exciting. no, it's fine. Don't. <laughs> okay, next. When we used to sit around a table together and have dinner parties and you would be seated next to someone you didn't know, how would you strike up a real conversation with that person? I think I would start by rather mundanely asking them what they do. And then I would ask them, do you actually enjoy doing it? Oh, great. <laughs> great. <laughs> That's creative. Next to last. What gives you confidence? Oh, that's, that's a complicated question. And it's relevant because just this week, I had lost all confidence in myself when someone had asked me to do something that I didn't think I could do. So what gives me confidence is I take deep breaths. I remember who I actually am, not who I'm afraid I am. And I remember my belief that I'm always wrong to some extent. It's just a question of how wrong. So it's okay to be a little wrong. you got to be a little wrong. Yeah, that's a great answer. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> Why? It was Principia Mathematica by Russell and Whitehead. And Why did it change your life? So I was in high school, and we were studying symbolic logic somehow in math. And I heard of this 
two-volume set by Russell and Whitehead, which was Bertrand Russell's magnum opus on, uh, on, on knowledge and knowing. And the only copy available was at the John Carrara's Library in downtown Chicago. And I would literally get on this subway and go downtown and check that book out. You couldn't take it out, but you could sit in the reading room. And I would go down there every Saturday and pour over it, achieving about two pages per weekend. And I believed that, that by reading it, I would understand everything. I used to jokingly say, and I'm embarrassed, but it was, was in the 1950s or 60s that I said, with this, I'll be able to understand women. But it was the concept, it was the concept that I got from the book that you could actually know things with absolute certainty and have true knowledge. And I think that might very well have been a large part of what set me on the path of being a scientist. I, I realize now that there are many ways to seek truth. But at that point in my life, I realized that it was going to be mathematics and science for me. That's so interesting. That, that again, could be our next talk. <laughs> and I've had a great time with you, Bob. Thank you for being on. Well, I'm upset because I thought the last question would be, if you could have dinner with anyone who ever lived, <laughs> yeah. who would you pick? Because I was going to say Alan Alda. <laughs> well, next time we get on, we'll each eat a hot dog. <laughs> That's right. We'll, we'll get ourselves a couple of Red Hots. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bobby. Thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure as always. Take care and be well. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Robert Stickgold is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. His research focuses on the relationship between sleep and learning. I once had the pleasure of being studied in his sleep lab where I spent the night tossing and turning trying to fall asleep long enough to produce a dream. His new book, co-authored with fellow sleep researcher Antonio Zadra of the University of Montreal, is titled when Brains Dream. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving.
Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Penn Gillette, half of the Penn and Teller Magic Team. Penn is the half that talks. He doesn't reveal the secrets to any of their tricks. Instead, he argues that magic tricks are a playful way of making us think about what's true and what's false. For me, doing tricks in a magic show is a playful epistemological experience. You are playing around in a safe zone with how we determine what's true. We've seen what happens when truth is played with on a real stage, uh, in the real world, with politics and so on. And it's horrific. I mean, to put it in very blunt terms, if you come to see a Penn & Teller show and you say, if these two guys can make me think something that's, that's patently not true, what can people with a real budget and with a lack of morals do? <laughs> Penn Gillette, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>